you're learning. This is a picture I won't leave up very long, but um, as sad as it is, those are Christians when ISIS took over northern Iraq that were crucified. And the Muslims did this uh, kind of as a sort of kick, you know, sort of a, a jab at Christianity. But people ask, is ISIS really what Islam is all about? Well, quite frankly, ISIS is probably closer to what true Islam and Muhammad did than a lot of other things you would see. Let me just give you one verse from the Quran to explain this. In chapter 5 of the Quran, verse 33, the punishment of those who wage war against Allah and his messenger, his messenger in this context is who? Muhammad. And they strive with might and main for mischief throughout the land. The punishment is execution or crucifixion or the cutting off of hands and feet from opposite sides or exile from the land. That is their disgrace in this world and a heavy punishment is theirs in the hereafter. So people can say ISIS has nothing to do with Islam. But what they're doing right there is an exact obedience to what the Quran specifically states to do to those who oppose Islam. And by the way, I'm not afraid. <laughs> but what I'm doing here today would fall under that verse as well. Okay? It's not just... And we'll see other places. It's not just with might and main or physical. It's also if you, if you speak ill of Muhammad. You've seen what, how Muslims go crazy around the world? I'll show you in a moment. And we'll talk about why. Okay, let's get off of that picture. With God's help, those are individuals are in heaven now under the altar crying out with the other martyrs, How long, O Lord, how long before you avenge our blood that was slain upon the earth? Why should we study Islam? Everybody needs Christ. Hey, there's probably more pagan Americans that need Christ than Muslims. That's true. But why should we study Islam in particular? Well, we've already looked at some reasons. Here's another one. The fastest growing religion in America today is Islam. And uh, there's a picture here. This is a mosque. Uh, where do you think that mosque is? Any, any truck drivers here today? No? Anybody ever go to Ohio or Michigan? Ah, oh, you're blessed. You're southern. You don't have to go. That's a, <laughs> Interstate 75, right before Toledo, on the right. Big, impressive mosque. Do you know that Islam says that Christians are the worst of all creatures? Do you know that? Now, when you go to work and you start asking your, your coworkers about this, don't get in trouble, okay? <laughs> Just tell them, this guy said, and they'll say, oh, no, no, no. <laughs> what? Lo, Surah 98, verse 6. Those who disbelieve among the people of the Scripture. Now, in the Quran, we're called Nasara or Christians, and there's also the Jews. But whenever it says people of the Scripture or people of the book, that's referring specifically to the Jews and the Christians, people of the book. Those who disbelieve in Islam among the Jews and Christians are the idolaters. They will abide in fire of hell. They are the worst of created beings. So if you don't believe in Islam and you're a Christian, you are the worst of created beings according to the Quran. I know I am. I'm guilty. 
Now, this is terrible. This is a terrorist organization, I think in the UK or whatever. After September 11th, they had this conference about Islam. And these are the 19 hijackers for September 11th. Look, they said the magnificent 19. Uh, again, uh, we talked about the religion of all these. 17 from Saudi Arabia, 2 from UAE, 1 from Egypt, 1 from Lebanon. But they were all Muslims. And they did this because they believed that they were following the religion of Islam. Why would they believe that? Well, let's take a look. Did you know that Islam allows Muslims to lie to non-Muslims? You know, in America, we have this idea that, that you should tell the truth. We do a lot, unfortunately, a lot of Americans lie, but at least we know it's wrong. Uh, over there, it's not necessarily wrong. As a matter of fact, in the Quran, there's four places where it says Allah, that's their word for God or their conception of God. They claim it's our God, but it really is not. By the way, if anyone says, is the God of the Muslims and Christians the same, we should say no. And, and if a Muslim says, oh, yeah, we follow the same God, this is what you should ask him. So you believe that your God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? They say, oh, no. <laughs> they say, well, then we don't follow the same God because my God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They don't believe that Allah is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay. Uh, but it says in the Quran, now this is actually the Hadith. We're gonna, I'm going to explain what the Hadith is later. Uh, but in the Quran, it says that, that Allah is the greatest of all deceivers. In Arabic, khair al makarain And so he's the greatest of all deceivers. It's interesting. In the Bible, who's the greatest of all deceivers? Is it God? It's the devil. But in the Quran, Allah is the greatest of all deceivers. How, there's no place where Muhammad says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Or Allah is the way, the truth, and the life. As a matter of fact, in Islam, it's okay to lie, and here's a hadith. I'll explain more what that is later. Muhammad basically says that you can lie in war, in battle, for bringing reconciliation among persons and the narration of the words of the husband to his wife. There's three places you can lie if you're a Muslim. Number one, you can lie in war, okay? Uh, number two, you can lie to your friends, you know, like a white lie to make things better. Number three, you can lie to your wife. Now, it doesn't say the wives can lie to their husbands, but um, I got a question for you. You got your enemy, your friend, and your wife. Who's left? So who can you not lie to? You can lie to anybody, anytime. Okay, this is what Muhammad basically said. Did you know that if you convert to Islam and then decide to leave it, you are to be killed? If you have a, a, a child or, or a grandchild who goes to Chapel Hill or one of these schools around here, any state university, but almost any university now, and, and you know, they, they seem to lose their religion or change their religion or whatever else, maybe they say, well, you know, I think Islam's great. I think I'm going to convert to Islam. Be careful. If they convert to Islam and then later they decide, I don't think I'm going to be a Muslim. I'm going to be an atheist. Or I'm going to be a Christian. Technically, although it doesn't always happen, thank God, but technically, what's supposed to happen to them? They are supposed to be killed. Muhammad says, the blood of a Muslim who confesses that none has the right to be worshipped but Allah and that I am his apostle cannot be shed except in three cases. And one of them is one who becomes apostate from Islam. If you leave Islam, you should kill the Muslim. That's what Muhammad says. He's no longer a Muslim. Also another place, 
I would have killed them according to the statement of Allah's messenger. Whoever changes his Islamic religion, kill him. This is uh, universally acknowledged in Islamic uh, theology. You kill the apostate. Pastor Gerald and I were talking. Islam was propagated and is upheld by two forces, force and fear. If you take away force and fear, Islam will implode. It will collapse. But Muslims have a great fear of leaving of Islam. I have a cousin from Iraq who came and visited with me one time, and he said, you know, I don't really believe Islam. He said, if, if I knew they wouldn't kill me, I'd become a Christian. Did you know if your daughter marries a Muslim, he's allowed to beat her? Yes, the Quran says that if you have a disobedient wife, you should beat your wife. It talks about uh, men are in charge of women because Allah has made men, the one of them, to excel the other. And down here it says, as for those from whom you fear rebellion, a rebellious wife, first of all admonish her, then lock her up in her bedroom, and then if she still rebels, what does it mean to scourge? That's what they did to Jesus. Whip, beat, beat your wife. There's actually a whole theology uh, in Islam, and I even have a video, I'm not showing it today just for time's sake, about you can beat your wife, but, there's, but, but they say, but Muhammad was so wonderful. He, he liberated women because he, he told you you can only beat her so far. You know, you don't knock out a tooth. You know, don't make a permanent deformity. As long as you don't do that, it's okay. You can beat her. You see how peaceful Islam is. And that's, that's why you have Muslims saying that. Did you know Islam considers you, the enemy, to be fought in the, to submission? Well, who is you? Anyone here who is not a Muslim, you're the enemy. That's what it says in the Quran and in Islam. This verse is so important. If you're a Christian today, if you hear anything from the Quran, you need to hear this verse. Why are Muslims always fighting us? Fight against who? Against those who believe not in Allah, nor in the last day, nor forbid that which has been forbidden by Allah and his messenger, Muhammad, and those who acknowledge not the religion of truth, i.e. Islam. So fight people who are not Muslims from among the people of the scripture, the people of the book, Jews and Christians. Fight Jews and Christians. How long are they supposed to fight us? Until they pay the jizya with willing submission and feel themselves subdued. Now, this is what, uh, this passage is what ISIS used in Mosul in Iraq. Remember, they took over this area in northern Iraq where there were Christians, and they gave the people a few choices. Number one, convert to Islam. Number two, um, you can, uh, what is it, you can leave. They gave them that choice. Get out of here. We're taking everything you have. Or number three, you can stay and you can pay us the jizya. Jizya is a tax. Now, the Muslims decide how much and how often they want the money. And they say, this is really, it's, it's like paying money to a racket, protection money. If you want to continue living here under us, you pay us however much we want whenever we want it. This is exactly what ISIS did, and they followed this verse. Now, you know, this is, this is extremely important. If you're an Orthodox Muslim, if I was a Muslim, I would be hard-nosed like I am as a Christian. Now, when I say hard-nosed, I believe the Bible. Uh, and, you know, 
I, I believe what it says. Straight is the gate that leads to, and narrow is the way that leads to everlasting life. And few there be that enter in thereat. And Christ is the only way. Unlike Joel Osteen, I disagree. And, uh, but that doesn't make me want to kill people. It makes me want to see them saved and go to heaven. And the worst I can be accused of is being intolerant and obnoxious. And he keeps telling me about the Bible and how i got to get saved. But if I was a Muslim, I wouldn't be doing that. I'd be doing this. Why? Because if you believe this book, the Quran, the way that I believe this book, the Bible, because I believe this book, I've dedicated my life to preach the gospel wherever I can and to preach the truth. If I believe this book, the Quran, the way I believe this book, I wouldn't even be here. I'd be dead because I would have followed that verse and others like it and sought to fight and kill the infidel wherever I can. And that is why you have this weird, strange phenomenon of people in America, Americans, converting to Islam, and all of a sudden they want to get a ticket to Syria to go fight for ISIS. Because in the mosque, they show them these verses, and they say, that's exactly what I'm supposed to do. Some people say, well, you know, maybe, Pastor Joseph, you don't understand the Arabic. This is interesting. When you start, and, and you will probably encounter this, if you start to tell Muslims, you know, Muslims, why does your Quran say you're supposed to fight us and kill us? Oh, it doesn't say that. And then if you show them the verse in English, well, you know, you don't really understand the Arabic. Uh, there's some problems there. You don't know what it means unless, unless you can understand the Arabic. And so then what you're supposed to do is you turn to the Arabic and say, and you do that, and then they'll be there in awe, and then they'll walk away. The point is, I had to learn that. Now, why do I have to learn that? If you're going to teach this authoritatively, you need to be able to go back to the Arabic. But what Muslims do in the West, by the way, what percentage of Muslims know how to read and write Arabic? About 18%. If your Muslim friend is from India or Pakistan, they don't know how to read that. Most of them don't. All they do is they pray in Arabic because they've memorized certain prayers by rote memory like a child does. They don't know how to read Arabic. When you know how to read Arabic in the Quran, then they all shut up and leave. But, but what they do in the West is they'll say, well, you know, Islam's peace, Islam's peace, you don't understand, you don't understand, it's translated from the Arabic. I know the Arabic, and I'm here to tell you Islam is not peace, okay? It's not. It's important to know this. Did you know that Muslims are supposed to fight their non-Muslims neighbors? Now, thank God that most Muslims don't know what the Quran says, and most of them don't follow it, okay? But for those little you know, people who said, oh, you don't have to worry about that, only 10% of the world's Muslims really believe this stuff. Yeah, but that's 150 million. That's a lot of problems around the world today. Chapter 9, verse 123. O true believers, in Arabic, Ya ayyuha alladhina amminu. Wage war against such of the infidels as are near you, and let them find severity in you. 
and know that God is with them who fear him. Notice, it doesn't say here, fight those who fight you. There is a verse in the Quran that says, fight those who fight with you. Muslims will say, we'll only fight defensive war. This doesn't say anything about that. What does it say? What's the condition to fight people? Wage war against such as are infidels. Whoever's not a Muslim, you have an open uh, engagement to fight them in war. Now, how many of you knew that that was in the Quran? Okay. How many of you, how, what percentage of Muslims in America do you think know that that verse is in the Quran? Probably 1%. Thank God. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Thank God that most Muslims don't believe Islam. <laughs> now, I, 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 my, my heart mourns that most Christians don't know the Bible and don't follow it. Because we'd have quite a utopia here in America today. But I'm glad that most Muslims don't know the Quran and follow. Because we would have hell on earth if they did. And by the way, a lot of Muslim countries oftentimes look like hell on earth. Do you know what was one of the last... Real quickly, I'm sorry for the aside. This immigration crisis... Are they fleeing to other Muslim countries? How many immigrants does Saudi Arabia take in? Or Dubai, or UAE, or Qatar, or Kuwait, all these rich gold? None. Where are they going? Historically Christian countries. Isn't that strange? If Islam is so wonderful, why are all these migrants leaving Islamic nations and going to quote-unquote Christian nations? Good thing to consider. Do you know what was one of the last pronouncements from Muhammad? I've been ordered to fight against the people until they testify that none has the right to be worshipped but Allah and that Muhammad is Allah's apostle and offer the prayers perfectly and give the obligatory charity. So if they perform that, then they save their lives and property from me except for Islamic laws and then their reckoning will be done by Allah. What's he saying here? He said, I've been ordered to fight everybody until they do what? Become Muslims. The only way they're going to save their property and everything they have from me taking it by force is for them to become Muslims. That's what Muhammad said. Don't take my word for it. If I could get this to work, take this guy's word for it. A Muslim imam in Egypt. Now look carefully. He's speaking Arabic. You'll have to look at the subtitles here. Let's see if we can get it to work. <laughs> لبذل روحه والقتال في سبيل الله تعالى بلا شك أنه على على فضل عظيم والنبي عليه الصلاة والسلام بين أنه لا يجتمع غبار أثير في سبيل الله ودخان جهنم في أنف امرئ أبدا ولا شك أن تعلق النفس بالجهاد في سبيل الله ورغبة النفس لسفك هذا الدم وسحق الجماجم وتقطيع الأجزاء في سبيل الله جل وعلا ودفاعا عن دينه لا شك أنه شرف للمؤمن وبين الله عز وجل أنه إذا قاتل المرء الكفار لم, لم يستطع الكفار ولم يحدثوا أنفسهم أصلا بأن يأتوا ويقاتلوا الآيات الواردة في, في القتال للكفار وفتح البلدان فإما أن أن يدخلوا في الإسلام وإما أن يدفعوا الجزية وإما أن يقاتلوا لو كان المسلمون فعلا 
طبقوا مثل ذلك لما وصلنا والله إلى الذل الذي نصل إليه اليوم essentially was exactly what I just told you. <laughs> he said, uh, it's the greatest honor for Muslims to kill in the way of Allah, to kill the infidels, to smash skulls, to tear off limbs, uh, to attack and, and to frighten them, and to take away their property, and, and to go and fight them and just give them, just give them a few choices, either become Muslim or we'll pay, you pay us the jizya or we're going to kill you. And he said, and if we had done this consistently, we wouldn't be having the problems that we have now and the humiliation that we're facing in, in the rest of the world. That was the Muslim imam, not Pastor Joseph. Uh, I won't take too much about four stages of jihad. Well, let me read it. It is important. Uh, we have this idea, Sayyid Qutb, the Muslim Brotherhood. This is the group that the Obama administration chose to support and put in power in Egypt after the revolution, but this, there was a lot of people that said, don't do that. This group is a terrorist organization, and they said, oh, no, it's a good organization. Sayyid Qutb was an Egyptian Muslim scholar, one of the early members of the Muslim Brotherhood, and, uh, and he talks about jihad, and this is very important for us in the West to understand. Four stages. Number one, while the earliest, now, now this, is, this is patterned after Muhammad's ministry, if you could call it that. When Muhammad was in Mecca and he first started receiving his supposed revelations, he didn't say anything about fighting the infidel. He only had a handful of followers. After like 12 or 13 years of preaching, I think he had 60 people following his religion. He never really preached about fighting the infidel. As a matter of, because guess what? He, he was in a small minority. And that black cube, that Kaaba, and that, that big mosque, was a place of idolatry worship. There were 360 gods and goddess statues in that place. Now, why 360? It was a religion, a, 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 a solar and lunar religion, and they worshiped the, the, the deities of the sky. There was 360 days in the lunar calendar. And, and so he didn't want to upset people. So while the earliest Muslims remained in Mecca before fleeing to Medina, uh, Allah did not allow them to fly fight. Permission is given to Muslims to fight against their oppressors. Allah commands Muslims to fight, and then finally Allah commands Muslims to fight and kill all the polytheists. All right, so what happens is the example of Muhammad is supposed to be the example for Muslims today. When Muhammad was very small as far as his influence, don't say anything about fighting. Just say peace, peace, everything is good. When you get to a place where you have a, a, a a strong minority, you can begin to, to fight. And when you get the majority, fight, kill, and take absolute control. And this is what Muslims do today in the world around. It, the views, uh, the fourth stage is to remain permanent. And so here's some verses that we have. We saw 929 at the bottom. Look at 838. Fight them, fight the infidels. How long? until we give them, you know, a lot of our tax money and uh, help their education and help their uh, social status? No. Fight them until there is no oppression and religion is holy for Allah. Fight them until when? Until everyone on the earth is a Muslim. Until then, you're not allowed to stop fighting. 
uh, and then it says, uh, look at this verse. They ought to fight in the way of Allah who have sold the life of this world for the life of the hereafter. And whoever fights in the way of Allah and is killed or becomes victorious to him shall we give a great reward. So this is something that, that is important today. Muslims in America generally don't say, we're here to kill you. We want to fight you and kill you. No. They say, we're here to be peaceful. We're here to fit in. We're here to work and, to, and all that. And quite frankly, thank God, most of them are here for that purpose. But the truth of the matter is, if you look around the world, wherever Islam gains in, in percentage, they begin to assert themselves more and more and more. Western Europe is having problems that we're not facing because of population differences. Okay? And then in Muslim countries, what if I was to say, let's do this seminar in Saudi Arabia? How, how well do you think that'd go over? Well, you'd all be in jail and I'd be dead by now. Uh, because in Saudi Arabia, they have complete control. This idea of Dar al-Harb, the house of war, and the house Dar al-Islam. In the house of Islam, that's where Islam is primarily dominant, there are certain rules that apply. But in the house of war, where you are a minority, you may act differently. And the key verse in the Quran is Surah 328, which says, Let not the believers take for protectors, that word in Arabic, awliya, could also be, don't take for friends, unbelievers rather than believers. So Muslims are not supposed to be friends of Christians and Jews and atheists. They should be friends of themselves. Unless, there's an exception, unless, unless, if any do that, in nothing will there be help from Allah except, by way of precaution, that you may guard yourselves from them. You can be friends with the infidel if you feel fear, if you feel you're in a minority, and if you feel this is something that is good for the ultimate advance of Islam. Otherwise, you should not be friends with anyone except Muslims. Now, look at what this tafsir ibn Kathir, tafsir in Arabic means commentary. Look at what, uh, and this comes from the hadith, look at what they said early on about Muslims in foreign lands where they're a minority. What's the idea? We smile in the face of some people, although our hearts curse them. And then at the bottom, the tukia is allowed until the day of resurrection, Allah said. And that word tukia or takia in Arabic means to deceive, to cover, to cover your true intentions, and it comes from this word in English, uh, precaution, wherever that is, uh, uh, unless it's by precaution, then you can do it. That's covering, deceiving, uh, you can do it. Otherwise, you're, you're not supposed to lie, but as we said, there's already three reasons to lie, and this is one of them. Remember, the first one was war, the second was with friends, the third was with uh, your wife. <laughs> Well, this is war. In America, they're in, and this is Islamic theology, they're in the Dar al-Harb. That means house of war. Even though it's not a physical war, except when there's terrorist attacks, but it's a spiritual war, and they can lie. They have, and, and by the way, as a Muslim, they're not doing wrong by lying. As a matter of fact, if they lie and they think it advances the cause of Islam, it is virtuous. It is something that is considered good in Islam. It is something that you'll be rewarded for as a Muslim from Allah if you lie and somehow it advances the cause of Islam. This is extremely important to remember. 
Why do we need to know about Islam? Many of our Americans have been killed in Muslim lands, and God uh, be merciful to them and, and their families, and, and I, I, I support our, our military involvement. But unfortunately, I believe a lot of our folks have been killed unnecessarily. And part of it is because, for example, when we were in Afghanistan, we used to have, there was even an idea where we had to read the Miranda rights to the foreign combatant and treat them like an American citizen. Rules of engagement that were ridiculous. Those things have changed. Interesting point, real quick. My, well, my people, uh, in America, what percentage of Muslims do you think voted for Trump? Very low. It's less than 5%, okay? In Iraq, they had a poll. Now, of course, Iraqi citizens can't vote for the president, at least not supposed to be able to. <laughs> I don't know if they are or not, but uh, not supposed to be able to. But the poll was, if you could vote in this last election, Hillary or, or uh, Trump, who would you vote for? What do you think the percentage was there? Something like 97% of Iraqis said they would vote for Donald Trump. Now, that's interesting. Almost all of them are Muslims. In Iraq, Muslims overwhelmingly wanted Trump to win. In America, Muslims overwhelmingly didn't want Trump to win. Why? Because in Iraq, there is no political correctness. People just want to stay alive. And at the end of Obama's administration, half of Iraq had been taken over by ISIS. Hillary Clinton essentially said, we're going to continue to do what Obama did, which was not much concerning ISIS. Trump said, oh, we're going to, you know, obliterate them, we're going to knock them out, we're going to kill them, whatever he said. The Iraqis heard this and said, hey, that sounds good, we'll take him. And, and that's all they cared about. And within one year, thank God, I'm half Iraqi, I can say this, thank God ISIS is no longer in Iraq. Thank God. For us, it doesn't matter. For them, it matters a lot. My uncle, where I stayed, there were 28 miles was the line between ISIS and where he lives. Uh, thank God that that's been out. But the point is, Muslims in America, they don't care anything about the Democratic Party. What do they do with homosexuals in, in, in Muslim lands? They throw them off the highest building they can. You go on YouTube, you see some terrible things that ISIS did to homosexuals and others. Democratic Party is for homosexuality. Muslims are overwhelmingly Democratic voters because they like homosexuality. Why? All they care about is, is will you advance our cause of Islam or not? That's all they care about. That's all they care about. In Iraq, all they cared about was being able to live. <laughs> and they figured, well, if Trump will get them out, we don't care what he says about Muslims. Get them out, and, and we're happy. You see? Our, our priorities change depending on our circumstances, right? But really, it shouldn't be like that, should it? Interesting thought. My people perish for a lack of knowledge. That can be thought of in more than one way. Muhammad is the key to understanding the religion of Islam, so much so that in time past, Islam used to be called Muhammadanism. Muhammadanism. You ever heard that term? If you look back, oh, it's 100 years or so and more, they would call it Muhammadanism. Now, Muslims don't like that. But the fact of the matter is it's actually a very good term because all of Islam comes through Muhammad. Everything that is Islamic scripture came through the mouth of one man. Now, the Bible 
written over 1,400 years by some 40 different authors, but amazingly uh, together as one unit by the same spirit inspired, all say essentially the same thing. The Quran, everything in the Quran came from the lips of just one man, Muhammad. All of the other scriptures of Islam, which I'll show you in a second, came from the lips of just one man, Muhammad. Islam stands or falls on the integrity of one man, Muhammad. Interesting. The Sunnah of Muhammad. You have indeed in the Messenger of Allah, that's of course supposed to be Muhammad, a beautiful pattern of conduct for anyone whose hope is in Allah and the final day and who engages much in the praise of Allah. The idea of Sunni Islam, that word Sunni, comes from this word Sunnah, which is the example of, of the life of Muhammad. So I, uh, philosophically, the ideal Muslim would look, talk, act, think, dress, and be just like Muhammad in 7th century Arabia. This is interesting. Racism is all around the world. But philosophical racism is in the religion of Islam. Are there Muslims who are racist? Yes. Are there Christians who are racist? I'm sorry to say yes. But the question is, is Christianity as a religion racist? No. Is Islam as a religion racist? Yes. It's also sexist. Women are less than, than men in Islam. And anyone who is not an Arab is less than an Arab. If you want to be the best Muslim you possibly can, oh, I got this guy so mad in Holland one time, I, figured, I felt like he was going to get on a boat quick and kill me. He, he, he was this Holland-Dutch uh, guy, and he converted to Islam, and he was so proud of his religion. He was telling me why Christ is, is, is not God and all this stuff. And I said, you know, it's, it's a shame, isn't it? I said, you'll never be a good Muslim. What? What are you talking about? I said, at least I'm half the way there. You know, I'm half Arab, but you're not even, you're no Arab at all. And the Arab Muslims, when I've been with them, I said, they laugh at you. They think, ah, another conquest of those silly white guys. Oh, he got so mad. He got so mad. But the point is, I know, I'm half Arab. I've been, the Arab this is an Arab religion. If you want to read the Quran, what do you have to learn first? You really want to read the Quran, any Muslim will tell you you have to learn Arabic. Interesting, the Bible we translate to all kinds of languages. We don't say you have to read English or even you have to read Greek or Hebrew, although it's good for your pastor to know that. But, but for Islam, this is, is an English translation and the Arabic is also here. It's a parallel version. But it says on the cover, the meaning of the Holy Quran. Because technically, if it's in English, they say that's not the Quran. It's just a commentary. Islam is a form of Arab imperialism. Interesting. You know, in Iran, they speak Farsi, which is not Arabic. But the script of the letters are Arabic letters. In Pakistan, they speak about the same language as they do in India. In India, it's Hindu or Hindi. In, in, uh, in, in Pakistan, it's Urdu, and they can understand one another. But the Hindi, you know, it's like this and this and this and this. But the, but the Pakistan language, Urdu, it's not Arabic, but they have an Arabic script. In Turkey, they have a, a, a what do they call it, Cyrillic script, kind of looks like Greek and Russian. 
But before the 1920s, even Turkish, which is a different language from Arabic, they had it in an Arabic script. Why? Because as Islam took over all of these countries, it, it, it Arabicized all of these. They said, you have to speak Arabic. You have to learn Arabic. They changed their alphabet, everything else. And that's why any mosque here in Greensboro, over there, or Burlington, or wherever, they teach Arabic. Why do they teach Arabic? If you want to be a good Muslim, you've got to learn Arabic. But you can't be a great Muslim unless, first of all, you're a man, and second of all, you're Arab. I'm only three-quarters of the way there. But the point, but they won't tell you that. But it's true. It's true. All right. And so you have, and that's why when, when you see a Muslim out in the, in the street somewhere, a woman with a hijab, but especially a man with a beard and all these clothes, you know, robes and everything, look out. You got a serious Muslim on hand. Because the idea doesn't just you, you believe what Muhammad says. You got to act like him. You've got to look like him. You've got to dress like him. You've got to talk like him. Certain times that you might see some guy with a beard and it'll be orange. You say, that's ugly. What's that about? Because Muhammad used to dye his beard with henna at certain times of the year. And so they'll do the same thing. I mean, it's, it's just it's insane the way they go. Okay? And this is the sunnah. The body of traditional Islamic law accepted by most Orthodox Muslims is based on the words and acts of Muhammad. This is very important. Now, I'm going to have to speed up. Last time we had extra time. This time we're going to run out of time. So I'm going to do my best here. Quran, Hadith, and Sunnah all come from Muhammad. Now, the Quran is, is the religious book of Islam. But remember, I asked you, where does Islamic practice come from? Well, it really comes even more from the Hadith. These are, are books that are the Sunnah of Muhammad. The Quran is supposedly what Allah said to Muhammad and to Muslims. The hadith is what Muhammad said, what he did, how he acted. And, and Muslims accept some of these hadith almost as much as they accept the Quran as their instruction for how to be good Muslims. This is the Quran. Supposedly it was, it was given to Muhammad through Gabriel. Of course, we don't believe that. And uh, this is, what is the Quran? It talks a little bit about here uh, some of the verses explaining what the Quran is supposed to be, revelation from God. Who wrote the Quran and when? The Quran was not written until after Muhammad died. It was put together. If you read the Quran, it's not chronological. It was put together piecemeal, a little here, a little there. It's very hard read. It's contradictory. It's confusing. And, and it's very strange. But anyways, it was collected from different things that Muhammad said during his lifetime. Here's a hadith that proves that Muhammad didn't write the Quran. This is Islamic hadith. It says that Zayd ibn Thabit, a secretary under the third uh, caliph, I think, uh, or second caliph began this, Umar, and, uh, and they wrote it. And as a matter of fact, uh, Muslims will tell you, oh, how many versions of the Bible you have? NIV, KJV, NASV, RSV, da 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 da, da. And which one is right? And they, we only have one Quran. Well, it's not really true. Uh, as a matter of fact, if you study the history, there was a great recension. In early Islam, under the first few caliphs, uh, there were different people who understood the Quran differently and had different versions of the Quran, and they began to fight one another. The third caliph of Islam, Uthman, said, you know what we need to do? He sent to every Muslim province, or what he did is he ordered everyone who had manuscripts of the Quran to send them back to headquarters. Everybody. 
So most everybody did. He said, all right, Zayadib and Thabit's my secretary. You look at it. You write down what you think is right. Anytime two of the uh, readings disagree, write it in the dialect that Muhammad spoke of his tribe. And he did it. When he finished, he said, make copies of what we wrote and send it to all the Muslim provinces and take all of the manuscripts that they sent to you and burn them. You heard of Terry Jones wanting to burn the Quran in Florida? I don't know why the Muslims were so mad. Their own leader, the third leader of Islam, had to burn the Quran day. He burned everything that was the Quran and he, he made uh, what he said was the actual Quran, burned all the manuscripts that were there, and from that day forward, here's your one Quran. We could do that with the Bible. Burn the 6,000 Greek manuscripts we have. Burn all the manuscript evidence we have. Write one the way we think it should be. We only have one Bible. That's what Islam did. The composition of the Quran, we already talked about that. Quran, Hadith. This is the Hadith Sahih al-Bukhari and Sahih Muslim. This is all of those books. Look how many books. The Quran is smaller than the New Testament, but if you had the Hadith that Muslims believe in, if this was the Quran, it would be from here to the floor. Books. Okay? All kind of uh, information. Uh, look at this quote of the relation between the Quran and the Hadith. It's almost impossible to understand or explain the meaning of a large number of Quranic verses if the traditions, that is the Hadith, are rejected as useless and inauthentic. A lot of Muslims <coughs> excuse me, want to say, we don't believe the Hadith. Why? Because the Hadith has some ridiculous stuff, shameful stuff in it. It says, for example, that uh, the devil, the devil uh, doesn't like to hear the call to prayer. Boy, it's getting warm up here. Anyways, the devil doesn't like to hear the call to prayer. You know the call to prayer? Allah, you know, on the minaret. And so what does the devil do? Well, when the devil hears the call to prayer, he runs away from the mosque, and as he runs, he covers his ears, and he farts as he goes, so he doesn't have to hear the call to prayer. Now, that's in the hadith. There's a lot of other things that are very, very peculiar and strange. Like, for example, in the hadith, it says, we're not, we don't have time, but Muhammad, when he would supposedly get these revelations, this is what the hadith says. He would foam at the mouth. He would turn red. He would fall over and faint as if he was dead. He would have things that looked like seizures. Uh, he would sweat great drops like pearls of, of, of sweat and perspiration. He would, it would sound like buzzing of bees in front of his face. He would hear a bell. And then in another uh, uh, hadith, it says the ringing of the bell is the instrument of Satan. So whenever Muhammad supposedly got revelations from Allah, he would hear a bell ringing. Another hadith says the ringing of the bell is the instrument of Satan. Interesting. Many, many things, problems in the hadith. So Muslims say, well, try, they try to say in the West, we don't believe in the hadith. The problem is you can't understand the Quran without the hadith. The hadith, the Quran doesn't even tell you how many times to pray. That comes from the hadith. The, the Quran doesn't tell you all sorts of things about what you should do as a Muslim and not do. It comes from the hadith. So the hadith is very important. The Sira literature is biographies of Muhammad, very important, written by Muslims. All of this comes from Muslims. And in that, it tells real quickly, how did Muhammad learn he was a prophet? Well, Muhammad was, when he first started to get these supposed revelations, he was afraid he was demon-possessed. You know what they say about your first impression? It's usually right. Yeah. So Muhammad thought he was demon-possessed. 
Muhammad became suicidal because this spirit, who later he decided was Gabriel, stopped giving him revelations. And so he went up to the mountains around Mecca to throw himself off and commit suicide. But every time he was about to commit suicide, this spirit came back to him, oh no, you're a prophet, everything's good. Well, one time he was so terrified by the spirit's appearance, he runs home to his wife, Khadija, who was uh, 20 some years older than him, and he says, cover me, cover me, Khadija, hide me. And she says, what's wrong? It's this spirit, you know? And she says, look, we're gonna settle this right now. Muhammad, come and sit on my, my knee. So Muhammad sits on his wife's knee. He says, do you see the spirit? He says, yes. She said, come and sit on my left knee. Do you see the spirit? He says, yes. And then she uncovered her bosom and said, sit in my lap. And she uncovered her bosom. Do you see the spirit? He said, no. She said, ah, this is not a demon. This is an angel from God because he was ashamed when I opened up my shirt. You are a true prophet of God. There's the proof. And from that time on, Muhammad thought he was a prophet. How's that for confirmation of prophethood? <laughs> And that is in that book, which I have a copy of. And it was written by the first Muslim biographer of Muhammad. It wasn't written by a Christian or a Jew. The tafsir, there are, there are commentaries on the Quran, just like we have commentaries on the Bible. Ibn Kathir is one of the biggest and the most renowned. Uh, have you heard of Sharia? Sharia? They talk about Sharia law. We want Sharia law in the West. That's a big problem. Uh, th this is a book of Sharia law, The Reliance of the Traveler. Let me give you a real quick here. I made this up. It might help you. I wish we could figure out something better, but to try to help you understand this. So the Quran is in the middle, Hadith down here, biographies and commentaries here, Sharia law up here. What's Sharia law? Well, here it is. If you take what the Hadith says to understand the Quran, and you take what the biographies and the commentaries say to explain the Quran, you end up with what we call Sharia law. Does that help? Sharia law is really the summation of the Quranic teachings and the hadith, the biographies and the commentaries applied to society. And that is why, for example, in Sharia law, if they bring Sharia law to America, which they want to do, if, if you become a Muslim and then later say, you know, that wasn't such a good idea, I'm going to become a Christian again, they put you to death. That's Sharia law. Okay? We're, uh, if we'll just go a few minutes over, I think we can finish, finish this. We've got one minute left. If we can just go a few minutes, I should be able to finish it. This is very important. The prophetic tree of Islam. A lot of mosques have this. Now, if I was in a mosque, I wouldn't have this on my wall because it's really quite embarrassing. Th this is Adam, and this is uh, Enoch and Noah and Abraham, and in this way is Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, the 12 tribes of Israel, Jonah, David, Aaron, Elisha, Elijah, uh, John the Baptist, and Jesus. There's Moses there. Now on this branch over here, Abraham, Ishmael, and now notice this long bare branch. All the way to guess who? Muhammad. From the time of Ishmael, 2,000 years before Christ, to the time of Muhammad, 600 years after Christ, is that branch. And there's not one name on any of them. How do they know that? 
They don't know that. It looks, it's embarrassing. But this is what they claim. They claim that the blessing of God went from Abraham, not to Jacob in that way, but the true blessing went from Abraham to Ishmael and to the Arabs and ultimately to Muhammad. I wouldn't put that up if I was a Muslim. I'd be ashamed. Muhammad's life, we talked about that a little bit. Terror, doubts, and suicide. There are verses in the Quran and Hadith to back that up. Muhammad uh, was a polygamist. He had 13 wives and all. That's their names. But not just did he have 13 wives. He also had at least 26 female slaves. And he didn't have them just to work. He had them for a special kind of work. I'll leave it to your imagination. Uh, and so he had 13 wives, 26 female slaves for his personal pleasure. Um, there is this hadith that says Muhammad was sinless. A lot of Muslims think Muhammad is sinless, but that's actually not true. There's this, this it says that when he was a kid, uh, two guys in white like angels came and opened up his chest, knocked him over and opened up his chest, took his heart out and washed it and put it back in. And then that, that was, you know, but that's not in the Quran, that's in the hadith. A lot of Muslims believe that. But in the Quran, Muhammad is told you got to ask forgiveness for your sins. Therefore, have patience. God's promise is surely true. Implore forgiveness for your sins. In the Arabic, it's second person singular. You, Muhammad. Ask forgiveness for your sins. 48.2. Uh, that God may forgive you for your past and future sins. And 47.19. Uh, ask him to forgive you of your sins. Muhammad had to ask for forgiveness to go to, uh, for sins. Now, this is interesting. If you're going to follow a religion, at least follow one that promises you heaven. <laughs> Islam doesn't promise heaven. Muhammad did not know for sure if he would go to heaven. Now, why would you follow a guy if he didn't have a clue if he'd go? I wouldn't. That doesn't make sense. But anyways, that's true. The Quran says that. Here's a hadith to prove that. Now, this is really interesting, and we can, we're going to end here just in two minutes. We'll be done. In the Quran, it says there is a punishment. Allah says, you, Muhammad, if you ever invent anything, if you ever give revelations that aren't really from me, this will be your punishment. It says, and if the apostle were to invent any sayings in our name, we should certainly seize him by the right hand, and we should certainly then cut off the artery of his heart. That is the aorta, in Arabic, watin. Now look at this hadith. Muhammad, who knows how Muhammad died? Anybody know? Muslims don't know either. Ask one of your Muslim friends. This is just good. You won't make a man, you just ask him. You know, for us, the death of Jesus is very important. He died on the cross for our sins. How did Muhammad die? Just ask him. Muhammad died, according to Islam, it's well attested. He was poisoned by a Jewish woman. He was sick for three and a half years from that poison, but he didn't die. He was sickly. And in the end, the effects of the poison overtook him. And this is one of the things he said just before he died to his child bride, Aisha, who was six years old when he married her. I still feel the pain caused by the food I ate at Chaibar, and at this time, I feel as if my aorta is being cut from that poison. That's the words of Muhammad. Now, let me ask you again. What was the punishment for Muhammad if he ever makes up a false prophecy in the Quran? We should certainly seize him by the right hand, and we should certainly then cut off the artery, or other translations say the aorta of his heart. That's what Allah said I'm going to do to you if you ever make up false revelations. How did he die? 
I feel as if my aorta is being cut from that point. I did a show the other day, said Muhammad is not a prophet according to the Bible, according to Jesus, Paul, John, James. I said Muhammad is not a prophet according to the Quran. And I pointed this out. Real quickly to summarize before lunch. Jesus claimed to be God. Muhammad claimed to be just a man. Jesus raised the dead. Muhammad killed thousands. Jesus healed the sick. Muhammad died from sickness. Jesus said, love your enemies. Muhammad said, kill your enemies. Jesus said, forgive your enemies. Muhammad said, retaliate. Jesus was celibate. Muhammad had 13 wives and 25 or 26 slave women for sexual purpose. Jesus says, I'm the resurrection, the life. He who believes in me shall have everlasting life. Muhammad says, I don't know what will happen to me. I don't know what's going to happen to you. He was unsure of his salvation. He was poisoned by a Jewish woman from Chaibar, a town that he and the Muslims took over. He killed this woman's uh, brother and father, and she's the one that poisoned him. He died three years later. He cursed the Christians at the end of his life. Jesus found not guilty, but crucified anyways, prayed for forgiveness for his executioners, and rose from the dead. Muhammad has a grave you can go visit in Medina. Jesus' grave is empty, praise God. And uh, I won't read it, but there, in Islam there's this idea of scales, works religion. Hopefully you have more good works than outweigh the bad, but at the same time it's ultimately up to Allah. And, uh, and there's no assurance of salvation except through what? through dying as a martyr, fighting in the cause of Allah. And you have that in 474, and you have that in 61.9. You who believe in Allah and his apostle, if you struggle hard, that word struggle hard in the Arabic is jahada. Jahada is the verbal form of the noun word jihad. If you fight jihad and Allah's way with your property and your lives, that is better for you. He will forgive you your faults and cause you to enter into the gardens. This is the only assurance of salvation in Islam, is to die while fighting jihad against the infidel. There's a promise of the martyrs. We have good news for Muslims. You know John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And let me close with this thought. The devil and Satan is a, is a really great deceiver and counterfeiter. And what you'll find is, is oftentimes what's true in Christianity, you have something in Islam that's a counterfeit of it. And here's one of them. In Islam and in Christianity, the only assurance of salvation comes from blood sacrifice. In Islam, it's the blood sacrifice that you make in trying to shed the blood of a non-Muslim in war. In Christianity, it's the blood sacrifice of the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world and is freely given to all who would believe. What a stark, stark contrast. Amen? Question one or two, and then we'll pray for the meal. Anyone have any questions? Yes. Well, that's a good question. Number one, there's a lot of ignorance. A lot of Muslims don't know, and a lot of Muslims really do believe that their religion is peaceful. When you begin to... I've had Muslims call me on my show and say, there's not one verse in the Quran that ever says to be mean to anyone. 
I said, well, how about cut off their heads, cut off their fingertips, crucify them, kill them wherever you find them. Oh, no, it's not in the Quran. I said, go get your Quran. And I waited on air, and they, then they go and they open it, and then they get mad at me and hang up. So, so this is what happens. A lot of Muslims simply do not know. And in the West, their second or third generations, they've been brought up in the West, and they think that their Islam is like general Christianity. They have taken the ideas of love your neighbor and all that that they've somehow heard a dim echo of in our post-Christian society, and they've just placed those virtues on what they think Islam is. A lot of it is that. There's ignorance. There's also deception. The real serious Muslims will lie. Oh, yes, Islam is peaceful. Islam is peaceful. And then the third thing is that there is a, a degree of Muslims who say, well, you know, uh, Yes, there's violence and everything, but you know, that was just for back then, and uh, that's not for us today, you know, that kind of thing. So there's a few reasons why, thankfully, they're not killing us. But number one is ignorance, okay? Another question? Okay. Well, I hope you're getting something out of this. Uh, let's pray, and we've got a lot more after lunch. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for these here today. Lord God, uh, we see this religion just a very short glimpse, brief glimpse. There's so much to look at. But I hope that everyone here can see that Muhammad was a deceived individual. And those who follow him are deceived. And yes, sometimes they are very ugly towards non-Muslims around the world and murderous and violent. But Lord, help us to remember that the biggest victim of the religion of Islam are Muslims. Because they have been deceived, they have been enslaved to a bondage of a false satanic religion that the only way they think they can get to heaven is to kill an innocent non-Muslim. Have mercy, Lord God. Help us now as we eat. Bless the food to our bodies. Prepare those who prepared it. Bless them as well. May our fellowship and discussion edify you. And may the rest of the day be useful, informative, and again, help us to leave here armed with the truth about Islam, but even more, the truth, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit, and your Holy Word, arming us to go forth in the spiritual war and to share Christ boldly with the Muslims that we know and to support those who do and to give you the praise and thanks and the glory for the victory that we have through your Son, Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Praise the Lord.